Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Ukraine has found itself at the center of the impeachment attempt of President Donald Trump, with the president's ambassador to the European Union testifying that the president demanded a quid pro quo by holding back military aid to Ukraine. Unless newly elected Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky investigated Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. We're not going to delve into the impeachment process on this podcast as that can readily be found elsewhere. But instead, we're going to look at what's happening on the battlefield in Ukraine, which has been raging for more than five years in the Donbass. Joining the crisis next door to talk about that and what, if any, prospects for peace exist for Ukraine is Dr. Donald Jensen with the Center for European Policy Analysis and a Russian security professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Dr. Jensen, good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door. Well, thank you for having me back. Thank you for showing some interest in this very critical and important uh, subject, so thank you. Obviously, Ukraine has popped up into the consciousness of most Americans at this point, but what many don't understand has been the war that's been going on. It's estimated over Mm -hmm. 13,000 people have been killed in over five years of fighting. And I think it's fair to say, if not for the impeachment hearings, most Americans would be completely unaware that there is a war in Ukraine. Why do you think that such a prolonged conflict in a European nation has remained under the radar for so much of the world? Well, if I could add a real, uh, not a small point, but add two points, Jason, it's 13,000 killed, uh, wounded 30,000, and a million and a half people uh, refugees. So it's quite a social displacement, quite an awful situation. And again, I appreciate you asking about it. Why has it disappeared from the screen? I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, people were tired of hearing about it, but they were even a year or two ago. This has gone on for five years. It's degenerated from a, uh, I wouldn't say sexy, a an exciting, unexpected, exciting in a negative way, uh, unexpected uh, European and international crisis to kind of a slogging, uh, indecisive, difficult, complex situation, which requires people to spend time attention on it, as you said, but also it's very hard to separate what's going on from the, the myths and especially what's going on from the Russian disinformation operations, which are pretty extensive. You and I are probably both too young to remember the Vietnam War, but you know, after a while, audiences and even publics interested in foreign policy are sort of sick of hearing about the same thing all along, but it remains really a critical problem and issue indicative of a larger threat that Russia poses for the West and the United States. And uh, it's very important we understand what's going on because there's quite a bit of disinformation or propaganda about it. And so, as I said, I'm glad to talk about it with you. The Donbass front stretches across 300 miles of Ukraine. Can you describe what the battlefield looks like? Yes. uh, If I can give another sort of complicated answer, uh, it's important to understand Ukraine, its 
among its many very interesting things, and it's not just a, an adjunct of Russia. Uh, that eastern part of the country, however, from Kiev eastward to the Russian border, is largely Russian-speaking and largely ethnic Russian. And uh, they are not, I think the, the data is pretty secure on it, they're not interested in leaving Ukraine. It just, just happens to be a bilingual country in the way that Canada is or Belgium is. It's that kind of a situation which the Russians are trying to exploit. That area is, as I said, Russian-speaking, heavily industrialized, was settled largely uh, about 200 years, 150 years ago by immigrants from Russia into that Donbass, which is what they call it. It's heavy industry, coal mining, kind of dirty, heavy Soviet-style industries, where the western Ukraine is pretty rural, uh, heavily influenced by Central Europe and Austria-Hungary and that kind of thing. But that area is pretty rough. It's pretty brutal. And what's happened since the Russian invasion is that the whole society has collapsed, and it's uh, gone from a relatively lightning kind of warfare to stagnant ceasefire, violated by both sides, but mostly by the Russians. Artillery battles, and I think it, it looks probably more like Verdun in 1916 now than it does anything we're used to in the so-called era of, of modern warfare now. So it, it's pretty grim. And one of the problems people don't talk about is if even if there is a settlement of some sort and the prospects are not high, uh, uh, who pays for it? And my view is you break it, you fix it, and that's, that's a discussion that's quite a bit down the road. You mentioned Verdun, and it does seem like the clock has been turned back over 100 years to the trench warfare that typified World War I. How difficult is it for one side to gain any ground on the other? It's very difficult, uh, and I make that comparison because uh, there's much talk in fashionable circles in foreign policy about the reformed Russian military, and that's exactly what Putin's done with the Russian military the past decade. And there's much talk about, you probably heard the phrase, hybrid warfare, which is the use of propaganda, uh, social media by the Russians to advance their foreign policy objectives. But in Ukraine, that characterized the first many months of the war, but it, it, to some extent no longer does, especially on the battlefield. It is slogging kind of grinding European warfare that we haven't really seen since the, the end of World War II. Uh, the Ukrainian military, after almost disappearing in 2014, has uh, really revived quite a bit to, and to a considerable extent with the help of the U.S. Uh, the Pentagon programs have, have really helped the Ukrainian armed forces. And while there are a number of weaknesses, especially on the naval side, because Russia has now expanded the front to go into the Black Sea, where it becomes a part of a regional security problem, given its intervention in Syria and its close relationship with Turkey. Uh, uh, that's the Ukrainian side, and so there, there are, I, I get pronounced all the time about ceasefire violations. There are artillery that's firing back and forth. The U.S. gave very sophisticated javelin missile systems to the Ukrainians but they're not really allowed to use them by, by, the, by Washington. And so their armed forces have improved. Not improved. They're not better than the Russians, but when you put the whole package together, which is to say improved Ukrainian morale and improved Ukrainian military, plus Western sanctions, uh, plus Putin's unwillingness to ratchet up the war for fear of dead Russian boys going home and, and, and 
the, government, the Kremlin still maintains the fiction that Russia's not involved here. Uh, you get a, a pretty much a stalemate, and that's, that's, that's where we stand. And the arguments tend to be more over ceasefire. And so the question becomes, is, is like in Vietnam or other prolonged conflicts, where is this going? And I think Putin for now calculates that Ukraine will either collapse of its own internal problems, and there are severe ones, otherwise to make progress, or that just keeping the war going uh, to some extent will hinder Ukraine's clear and overwhelming desire to be a friend and partner of the U.S., to be in the European Union, and to be in NATO, which, again, at lunch today I talked to a minister who reaffirmed those as Ukraine's goals. So I think Putin went from a very ambitious military set of objectives to a much more let it fester, let it be an open wound in Europe, and that will serve Russia's interests just as well as as, uh, as winning the war would be. And that, that's pretty much where we stand now. And there's not a lot of hope that I think it's going to help going to uh, end anytime soon. You may have seen the, the French discussions between Macron, Merkel, Putin, and the new Ukrainian President Zelensky the other day, and uh, there was not really much much progress made, because whatever framework they're talking about, and it's called either the Steinmeier formula or the, the Minsk Accords, there's just too much ambiguity and too much dis- distance between the parties. For, for much progress to be made, at least right now. If I could add, a, uh, uh, the listeners probably already going to think what I'm saying, but one of the issues is is the so-called separatist issue, which is that Russia had has high, hired a bunch of soldiers of fortune and brigands to really stir up trouble in the Ukrainian East, and that was the original way they went in. But as Ukraine pushed back, Russia has had to move its own regular military in. So what you see is a limited conflict between Russia's own armed forces and Ukraine, aided by NATO and the West. And that's pretty much where it stands. Well, I think no, not much chance of either side really prevailing anytime soon. So people are trying to somehow explore and reach for a negotiated settlement. And again, I'm not that optimistic, but there are prisoner exchanges going on. And I think it's probably probably that is a good thing but it's not going to necessarily lead to a broader settlement with the separatists, a long answer jason but i hope that helps <laughs> no sorry to interrupt you there uh, that's fine i prefer a good detailed answer if the separatists did not have russia's help would they stand any chance against kiev none at all none at all and you see uh, you know one of the uh, people who work on russian disinformation jason always talk about how effective it is or is not. And it's very hard to measure how Russian propaganda impacts people who listen to it, whether they're in San Francisco or whether they're in, in Kiev. And uh, one of the successes has been the extent to which people talk about the separatists in eastern Ukraine. And they're really not separatists at all. That's just Russia's propaganda talking as though they there was some concerted political effort to join Russia in that part of the country. They're not separatists. They're just, they're thugs. They're hired by Russia, trained by Russia, equipped by Russia. And one of the negotiating problems is giving Ukraine, whether Ukraine and when should give back its control of its eastern border with Russia. And of course, Russia doesn't want to do that, because without Russia's ability to move weapons and supplies and material and soldiers back and forth across the border, the separatists would collapse. And so Putin can't give control of the Ukraine border back to Ukraine, because Ukraine would then win the war unless Putin could somehow get separatist states, which are now military-occupied by Russia, 
as entities recognized by the international community. So you'll see Russia pressing negotiations for the West and for Brussels and Ukraine here to talk about these separatist entities as somehow viable enterprises, and they're simply not. It's not unlike the debate about the Palestinian-Israeli issue we might recall a few years back. And so these things would collapse without Russian assistance, so Russia cannot turn the border back over to Ukraine because that would end its involvement. It would end as a defeat. So it's not going to do that unless it has other assurances that it can continue to to uh, to affect Ukraine's drift to the West. And it's a remarkable thing. I'm going to get into another paragraph for you. The war has galvanized Ukraine into a sense of nationhood that it never really had for a long time. And so if you look at the young, talk to the young people and most of the government, they're overwhelmingly pro-U.S. and pro-NATO and pro-European Union, as I said. That was a much more diffuse, weakly felt uh, uh, sense of nationality and nationhood five years ago. And Putin had thus had the, his moving in has had the effect of getting the opposite effect from what he wanted, which is that Ukraine is going to the West and he's got to stop it. And that's really his objective. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the war in Ukraine with Dr. Donald Jensen with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Is it possible to ascertain how the Russian public feels about the war in Ukraine? You mentioned the fact that Putin has stayed away from a, a total invasion, which he could do, but is he really worried about Russian mothers receiving their sons' coffins? He is, Jason, he is. Uh, excellent question. I, I, I will give you a... Uh, a less complicated but still uh, a somewhat complicated answer. The initial invasion of Ukraine was greeted overwhelmingly by Russian public opinion in a positive way. They call it you know, mobilizing the patriotic majority. And don't forget that this includes the takeover, which is illegal, of the Crimean Peninsula by Russia, the annexation of it into the Russian Federation, and also the very heavy military buildup, anti-Western, anti-U.S., and anti-NATO going on there right now. So that initial burst of enthusiasm, enthusiasm has waned considerably to the point where there's almost no excitement anymore for fighting in Ukraine. However, they do think of, not of Crimea, and particularly the Russian public, as part of Russia. But do they want to fight for it? My sense is increasingly no, they don't. So Putin has a problem now. His economy is not working well. He demonizes the U.S. all the time, and he demonizes Europe all the time, and he demonizes Ukraine all the time. But if the Russian public does not want their boys coming home in body bags, if they don't really want to support the war as they did five years ago, he's got a problem of legitimacy because he has to show he's in charge. And so one of the things you see constantly in Russian media, social media, TV, radio, is this demonization of the West as a bunch of corrupt democratic countries trying to strangle Russia and its greatness and its desire to return to the world stage. And so that's sort of a propaganda line. When it comes down to fighting, most Russians want the economy to get better. They don't want to be fighting in, uh, in uh, wars overseas. And I would say even though for some Russians it's very difficult to think of Ukraine as a different country, there are a lot of ethnic and familial connections. 
it's not unlike uh, Washington, D.C. to California or Texas or uh, the U.S. to Canada. There are enough cultural similarities that a lot of people feel con- uh, a connection to Ukrainians in Russia and vice versa. And that makes the, that, that makes the, the amputation really hard just for a lot of people to, to stomach. But they certainly do not want to fight and continue the war. But that, you know, it's not a democracy. So Putin pretty much continues the war because he thinks it's worth doing. And, and, and the public opinion is a very secondary to rule in his calculations. You mentioned Putin's use of mercenaries, and much like the war in Syria, Ukraine has attracted a lot of foreign fighters on both sides, some coming for ideological reasons, others for adventure. Mm-hmm. What are the differences in those fighters, and what are the reasons they're giving for joining Kiev or the pro-Russians? Well, uh, to be honest, though, that the number of Ukrainian, uh, let's call them soldier mercenaries, perhaps, uh, is much higher on the Russian side than the Ukrainian side. Um, and most of the fighters on the Russian side are, to some extent, ideological supporters of Putin or, or Russian extreme nationalists, or they do it for money, or they do it for other other material reasons. And as you said, these fighters have moved back and forth over the past maybe 15, 20 years. They've fought in Chechnya, they're fighting in Syria, and so forth. But the real place now, as the rubber meets the road in Ukraine, is much, much less about the foreign fighters. It's much more about Russia's military power and Russia's strategic ambitions versus the West and Ukraine. Poorly, unfortunately, located as it is, is the battlefield. It's much more of a great power competition right now. So the extent to which Putin can lure the French and the Germans in particular, they're on everybody's mind, to his point of view, is something he regards as a, as a success. So, again, the, the, the issue of who, 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 who is on what side is uh, is much less prominent now. On the Ukrainian side, you have you know mercenaries and soldiers of fortune, but it's under a thousand. I would think it's a, it's a very small minority. But what you do have on Ukraine, given where they started from five years ago, is some privately financed battalions that are very effective militarily. But those are increasingly integrated into regular armed forces. So I think it's the most useful organization to think of it as a a great power, a great power. Uh, 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 contest with both sides, uh, especially in the West, especially with the U.S. and Europe, uh, using, I'm trying to think of the word, it's, a, it's, a, it's an indirect conflict with great powers involved very closely and very extensively, put it that way. Circling back to the aid that the U.S. has provided to help build up the Ukrainian army, about $1.6 billion in aid. And mm-hmm. you mentioned those mm-hmm. Javelin missiles. Now, why did the U.S. give the Ukrainians Javelins if they can't use them? And is it reasonable to expect Ukrainian battlefield commanders to resist that urge? <laughs> Listen, uh, the reason is politics and politics. Uh, when the Ukrainian army seemed to be in retreat in 2014, the West rallied to their side by providing military training and money and assistance and weapons. And at the same time, they didn't want that assistance to be seen in Moscow as so provocative as to promote, provoke another increased Russian military commitment. So on the one hand, you give them javelins and you pass the economic sanctions. On the other hand, you put so many restrictions on use of the javelins that they effectively in the battlefield don't do anywhere near as much as they should have. And I would say, you know, for all the focus on the current president, that, that President uh, Obama himself was reluctant to, to provoke Putin 
in what he regarded as excessively. So while the Obama administration supported the Ukrainians, uh, they did not want to give the kind of weapon to, uh, military assistance that, that would make Putin get more angry and, and uh, get more deeply involved in the conflict. And you can argue, and I would, that angering Putin is not exactly a good foreign, not angering Putin is not exactly a good driver of, Russia, of U.S. foreign policy, but that's the calculation. So you hear the discussion about Trump and the, the, the financial assistance and all that stuff. As you said, probably we're not going to talk about that today, but the, the Trump administration in its entirety, and I mean in my entirety, I mean the Pentagon and also Congress has really done a lot for Ukraine. The Pentagon assistance programs in addition to the javelin, for training military officers and all the things that Ukraine has helped with, like military procurement and uh, medical uh, medical services for soldiers, all of that stuff we are helping with, as are the Germans and the French and the European Union and NATO. So it's a very broad set of assistance, but there is always the fear that we will provoke Russia to act more aggressively. And one can argue that proposition, but that underlies a lot of the limits you mentioned like on the javelins. And so you might remember President Obama referring derisively as Russia, Russia as a regional power. And that's not just sarcasm. It's Obama's attempt to minimize the extent to which the war is seen as a threat to Western and European security. Because if you say it's a major threat, you're going to have to respond. And Obama try to respond at a lower level and then minimizing the threat by calling Russia a regional power. And so these intellectual debates about why should we care about Ukraine uh, go on all the time, just like why should we care about China or Iran. And those are, those are the three big threats in the U.S. national security strategy. And, you know, we can argue about how much we should care about China, Iran, or Ukraine, but in my own view, the Ukrainian situation is a, is a major crisis one of the biggest since the end of the Cold War, and we have to respond to it effectively. And again, our response has been sort of mixed, but but in many ways very positive. And that's where we are right now. What is life like for civilians along the front lines? Are they able to cross lines for business or family reasons? They are, but not easily. And I think a lot of the people in the fighting areas are just want the war to end and sort of say a pox on both your houses. This is important because... Uh, politically, one of the ways Russia could pull out is to have a viable, decentralized Russian-speaking Ukrainian state, which means they would have to have uh, political rights, be able to vote. But when you've got town cities like Donetsk, uh, which is occupied by the Russians, run by a bunch of thugs with Russian armed forces all over the place, that's not the kind of environment conducive to free elections, to building a society, to rebuilding, and all that kind of thing. So the situation on the ground is, is grim, not everywhere, but it's pretty grim. And uh, again, there's no assistance program going on, and people want the war over. But they cross back and forth. Some people have family on both sides of the line. The issues of how senior citizens get their pensions from Kiev comes up, and, and how can you get money from Kiev when you're occupied by the Russian part of the country? All those very practical things that people have to deal with go on every day in a lot of places, and it's a very depressing situation. Because, as I said, there's not, I think, a lot of prospects for the fighting ending anytime soon. It certainly doesn't seem like there's any optimism anywhere to be found in, in ending this war, Dr. Jensen. 
Well, I would, you're, I, I would agree, and I, again, I had lunch with a Ukrainian minister today here, and he said, well, even though we have to keep in mind in Ukraine we try, the, the human cost of all of this, and we can get prisoners free and that kind of thing. Uh, we, we consider that a small victory. But, I, again, I would say to your listeners that this is a very big deal for not only the Ukrainians, but for the NATO and the United States foreign policy, because if we allow this kind of thing to go on, meaning... Russia's unilateral attempt to change borders violently. This is really a bad, it's a, as frankly, it's a dagger stab at the heart of NATO and a lot of what the U.S. and its allies have stood up for for so many years since the end of the Cold War. So is Ukraine ever going to get deal with some of its problems successfully, like its corruption, like its, its uh, uh, over-monopolized economy? I would say probably not anytime soon, but they are making progress. It's less corrupt than Russia, and they have a, it's a pluralist society, and at the bottom heart, it's a democracy. So people who say, why should we care about Ukraine, ought to ask themselves that question, knowing and seeing realistically the progress they have made, even if they have some problems they have to deal with. It's a, it certainly says a lot about modern society when we can normalize such a prolonged conflict as the one we're seeing in Ukraine. It does. Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for taking the time thank to join you. us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you, Jason. We've been joined by Dr. Donald Jensen with the Center for European Policy Analysis and a Russian security professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.